pastor of discipleship, although that title, I, I feel like only Jesus can disciple, and I, I just assuming the, the title, I guess, for a time being, because discipleship is following Jesus to become like him. That's how I, I just define it really simply, is following Jesus to become him. But when you think of discipleship, what are some activities that come to mind? If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, what are the things that you do? Probably your mind will go to read the Bible, pray, worship, go to church, maybe join a community group or a class. But I have a question. Would you include meditating on eternity as a spiritual discipline that should be a part of discipleship? I I don't think we think about that all the time. And yet when I read scripture, and we're going to do that later today, uh, in in a few minutes actually, we're going to see that the gospel writers presented this imminent return of Christ so much so that we should expect it each time we wake up. It's a spiritual discipline that I actually learned in, in college. And then when I became a youth pastor, uh, I took my students to summer camp. And we would go to Bass Lake. It's a lake really close, about an hour and a half away from Yosemite Valley. So we would take our Wednesday, instead of being at the lake, I would drive 30 plus kids and all the staff. We would go into Yosemite Valley and we'd either do a hike, we'd raft down the Merced River. Uh, we would boulder in a few bouldering spots. We'd have an awesome time. And one of the years that I went, one of the leaders wanted to take uh, half of the kids who wanted to go up to Nevada Falls. That's on the backside of Half Dome. Maybe you've seen the picture. It's about a three-mile trek. And it's, it's not the easiest of hikes, but you can do it. There's a falls that comes before it. It's called Vernal Falls. And I said, just take him to Vernal Falls. I don't think we have time for you to go all the way up. He got to the top. He, he looked at his watch as, we made some good time. I think we can go to Nevada Falls. And so he takes half of the kids up there, and he keeps going. And one of the kids didn't want to go, so he came back down the trail and told me. And in my administrative structured world, that afflicted me greatly. Because <laughs> now I knew all the time, my whole time schedule got shifted. And so being a stressed, pensive person naturally, that's where the flesh leads, I did not enjoy hearing the news. And so internally, I was frustrated, I was upset because we were going to miss the time that I'd set aside to go to the pizza parlor, then to drive back to camp, to preach, do worship in small groups, and then s'mores. All the stuff you do at summer camp. It was all shifted and off. And so we're on the hike with the rest of the kids who didn't go on the hike. Uh, I'm on the path leading to the pizza parlor. And internally, I'm just frustrated. I'm upset. Maybe you've been there. You probably know what it's like. If you have kids, you definitely know what it's like. And out of nowhere comes a pine cone and hits me in the back of the head. In that moment. Now, I hear some giggling. I hear some laughing. And I, I, I know exactly who threw it because I can hear the laughter. My second most challenging kid in the youth group. Not even close to the first, but it was definitely the second most challenging kid. And then another pine cone, and another pine cone. And it became a game in the youth group to see if they could hit the back of my head. And I had two responses that I could give. At least I thought two. The first was turn around and let my dad voice out and say, stop it right now. And then I would lose any credibility with the kids for the rest of the night. It's just, it's gone. I'm not their friend any longer. They don't want to listen to me. That's my dad. I don't want to listen to my dad. Or I could stuff it. And stuff it down and just keep walking and not deal with it. And then blow up later some other reason. But the Lord gave me the third option. Earlier that week, I'd been meditating on Colossians 1.27, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And on that little path, I began to say it over and over and over again, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in me, the hope of glory. To the point where I began to envision Jesus walking with me with thousand foot cliffs on either side, massive trees, bunches of ferns, and I began to enjoy the moment. 
those pine cones, although they kept coming, I forgot about them. I had no idea. And the rest of the day, when it came to preaching, when it came to enjoying and loving kids and serving them, using my gifts and worshiping the Lord and praying, I was filled with great joy and anticipation because I looked at that moment and says, I can't wait for Christ to return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And that drowned out every difficult challenge that my heart was facing in that moment. And so I want to present to us this morning that when you think of discipleship, it will be prayer. It will be genuinely loving one another. It will be unconditional service. It will be worship. But there's something that ties all that together, I think. This continual expectation that Christ is going to come. And I want to start there this morning. And we're going to be in 1 Peter. And I want to position your head and your heart in a place where you too anticipate Christ's return. As if it's happening in a couple minutes. And see what that does to our prayer life, does to our service, does to our love and to our worship. As you're turning there, I'd love for you to pray with me one more time before we open it. Our Lord and our God, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be the teacher this morning. To instruct our mind, to transform our heart, to expect Christ's return and to allow ourselves to pray, to love, to serve, and to worship you as we ought to, as we were created to. And so, Father, we sit before you and ask for yourself, your spirit to teach us. And may we be humble to receive the instruction from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so if you're in 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 7 through 11. It's a little short passage. It comes at the end of a book written to a church that is uncertain of their future. They know their future in Christ, but because of the onslaught of persecution that is being poured out on them, their faith and hope is wavering. In fact, some of them are probably tempted to return to their old way of life and abandon their faith in Christ. We know that because Peter writes to them and says, Jesus, his hope, be secured in it. Be holy as I am holy earlier in the book. And so he's writing to a church that's uncertain of their future, and he starts off in the very beginning of verse 7 and says... The end of all things is at hand. Man, we should expect the return of Christ. This phrase, the end of all things, is not the end of one's life or the the end of persecution. This is the consummation of God's big plan is coming to an end. Every I has been dotted, every T has been crossed. The only thing left is Christ to return and to rule. That's what we're waiting for, church. It is no different. But when Peter wrote this, that was 2,000 years ago. Was he wrong? Was his, is his statement inaccurate? No. Well, we're, we're tempted to think so. I certainly would not live my day with this sort of anticipation knowing it's been 2,000 years. In fact, the people that I've grown up around, whether it's my grandparents or people in the church, they say, Jesus is coming back in my lifetime. You know what my response was? I would roll my eyes at that. Like, oh, come on, I've heard that before. And yet, let's sit under the weight of Scripture because is that the more biblical position for our head and heart to be in? Look in Romans chapter 13 verse 11. He says, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Actually, James even says the the judge is standing at the door. John says, Therefore, we know it is the last hour because there are many antichrists. If you read in Jude chapter 1 verse 18, it says we eagerly anticipate Christ's return. Every gospel writer seems to include 
an expectant anticipation that Christ is coming back. And so how is this supposed to be encouraging? He's writing to a church that's anticipating persecution, uncertain of their future. How can this possibly be encouraging? The end of all things is at hand. Because God does not lie, he is and speaks the truth and his plan is perfect and he is being, we are being encouraged to know that it's coming. Now we know we're going to be in heaven with the Lord. I know it. Do I necessarily live like it? When I was in high school, I was a captain of my football team. I loved it. I enjoyed it. But this time of year, the last two weeks of August, is what was called Hell Week. It was really two weeks. I don't know why they gave it one. It was to confuse kids and not to mess with their mind. But it ended up being two weeks. And we would do double days. We'd start at 6 a.m. and we'd go to 11. And then we would break and we'd start again at 3 and go to about 7 or 7.30. And the first practice is mainly conditioning. That just means running sprints, just nonstop. You're just running and running and running. And you don't know how much you're going to run that day. You just know you're going to run. And so we'd show up for practice, all anticipating practice to be over. But we have to get through it. And as we're running sprints, coach would tell us we would, we would not know what time it was. We wouldn't know what we'd have to run. But nonetheless, we'd line up on the line. And he would either say there and back. It'd be like 40 yards we'd have to do. Three times, two times, whatever. And we'd run and we'd run and we'd run. And then there came this blessed moment in each practice where it says, okay, go get some water. Man, water never tasted so good. Man, when you're sweating and running and being exhausted, when that high school tap water with ice, I, I can't, I don't know what it is. I can picture it right now. It tastes delicious. In that moment was a reprieve from all the exhaustive exert, uh, being exerted, all of our energy in that moment. And that little sip of water would prepare me to get to the line again and keep running. This anticipation that Peter is putting before us is that water break. The end of all things is at hand. Take a moment. Stop what you're doing. Stop what you're going through. Release your mind to be able to dwell on eternity for just a second and then see what happens. See, when we think of discipleship, we have all those things come to mind. Prayer. Unconditional love towards one another, service, worship. We have all of those things, and sometimes they're really weighty. They are difficult, they are challenging, we don't want to do it, and we get probably uh, a little uncomfortable being around other people who love to do it. And yet, what Peter's presenting to us is a beautiful picture that should be on display in all of our lives. If your life was a house and you would invite people in and around, this is the most prominent image you should have displayed. It's above your mantle. It is the image of Christ's return and you being with him. But I have to ask a question. How do we hang that image in our mind continually? How do we bring ourselves to be reminded that Christ is going to return, that we will be with him in eternity? I think Peter's going to give us the way we hang it. We put a frame around it. And every frame has four sides. And he's going to give us four spiritual disciplines to hang the image and the picture and expectation of Christ's return. And he starts with prayer. Look at me in the second part of verse 7. He says, therefore, because Christ is coming back, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We eagerly wait with unhindered prayer. We eagerly wait for Christ to return with unhindered prayer. See, at the end of the verse, he says, for the sake of your prayers. This assumes that we're praying and we desire to pray. If you've been in a church any period of time, you know how important prayer is. 
Prayer is the access to all the spiritual resources our lives could ever need because we're accessing the source and sustainer of all things. It's the basis of our relationship with God is prayer. And so what he's saying, there's a specific qualification I want you to associate with your prayer, that it be self-controlled and sober-minded. What is a self-controlled and sober-minded prayer? I think self-controlled, and I think what Peter's positioning before us today is that prayer, self-controlled prayer is not carried away with an incorrect view of yourself or God. He must be in his proper place and us in ours when we come to the Lord in prayer. A self-controlled prayer has God in his place and us in ours. A sober-minded prayer does not have its senses dulled and is alert, keeping watch over all of its thoughts and its interpretations. A sober-minded prayer does not have its senses dulled and is alert, keeping watch over its thoughts and interpretations. You know, Jesus gave us this exact example in Matthew chapter 6. When he tells the disciples, don't pray as the Gentiles do, who heap up empty words and they get that reward. Instead, pray like this. What does he say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's the beginning of that prayer doing? It's putting God in his place and us in ours. We accurately view who God is in relationship to our lives. And so Peter is just reflecting what Christ taught taught him to pray. Is our prayers, could you describe your prayer life as self-controlled and sober-minded? Do I try to elevate God in my prayer? Or, Or is my prayer life reversed? Do I come to God in prayer shaking my fist, full of questions, being upset, disgruntled, so much so that I don't want to pray? I have been there. I know what that is like. Even sober-minded prayer, do I come in a drunken state? Not, maybe not literally drunk, but do I come in such a way that I don't know what God is even doing around me? I'm, my senses are dulled. I don't want to interpret what he's doing and what he's saying and how he's acting. Peter's saying, you want to elevate this image and expectation of Christ's return? Have a self-controlled and sober-minded prayer life. So how do you have a self-controlled, self-controlled and sober-minded prayer life? I think Paul gives us the example in Romans chapter 12. He says, have a renewed mind. And so what do I do for my prayers, the basis of what I come up with and and pray to God? I pray the scriptures. I pray the very words God has given me back to him. Because I know they're true. I can trust them. In fact, I read what he has given to me and in anticipation, I want what he said about me and this world. And so they become the basis of my requests. I think this is an amazing thing to do. When I come up on Sunday and do announcements and give my two prayers, the basis of each one of those prayers are one or two verses that I've been struck by. And sometimes I don't even understand the prayer. I don't know how it'll come about in my life, but I pray it nonetheless. Because in that self-controlled, sober-minded prayer life, I begin to have a relationship with the Lord. It doesn't become an obligation Christ didn't go away to pray because he was obligated to do so. He retreated to pray because he wanted to be with the Father. And so my prayer life, as I pray the scriptures, my mind is filled with who God is. And I want to be with him. Doesn't that, isn't that tied to what he just got done saying? The end of all things is at hand. And so as I pray the scriptures, as I pray what is true, I am reminded of what I need to be in relationship to God and I anticipate and expect to be in his presence. That is an unhindered prayer life. 
Because a hindered prayer life is one that is all the prayers, the requests, the desires just come out of my own flesh and my own understanding, which I know is fallen, weak, and corrupted. And so then prayer becomes a burden. Prayer does not become something I long to do and wish to do if I am praying out of my own thoughts and my own flesh. And so Paul, Peter, excuse me, gives us this bottom piece of the frame to hold this picture of Christ's return. So be in prayer. And then he gives us the next side. Read with me in verse 8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We eagerly await living with genuine love. This word love is unconditional. It's agape love. It's something you give, not expecting to receive anything in return. And so when we read this, we should think of Jesus' declaration that every command hinges on the first and second commandments. To love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. Every gospel writer includes a love one another type passage. It's essential to the life of the church, and it's essential to our own life and expectation of Christ. But Peter gives some qualifications. First, he says, above all. So if there's any doubt or any confusion what you should do in your life, and especially in the life of the church, love people. If you walk away with that, I, I ought to love people here, you're in good standing. But then he says the word earnestly. When you read the word earnestly, he is referring to unwavering or without end. This unconditional love that you show one another should not have, either, uh, should not have an end and it certainly shouldn't have any qualifications that you're using to give. And so our love, what should it do? Well, he gives us the reason right here. The second part of verse 8, he says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, this doesn't mean that our love can forgive sins. That's the authority of Christ and Christ alone. What Peter is doing, he's actually quoting a, a common proverb. It comes from Proverbs ten twelve. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. In our interactions with one another, our love is able to overcome our differences. Brothers and sisters, we annoy each other, do we not? Yeah. Let's be honest. We do. We, we can easily do that. We're fallen. We're fractured. We can frustrate one another. We can annoy one another. We can hurt each other, certainly. We can step on each other's toes. We can be envious of one another. We can desire many other things that creates frictions, that creates factions in the church. And what Peter is elevating is our unconditional love towards one another can overcome all of that. And it ought to be the case. And so loving earnestly eases tension. It breaks hostilities. It overcomes challenges. It softens hearts. It comforts the broken. And Peter is commanding this vast commandment of love because it is Christ-like love. What do we experience when a church is willing to love one another and over and atop our differences our stressors, our annoyances, what kind of church does this become? It becomes a Christ-like church. And so what do we get to experience when we're inside of a Christ-like church? Who Christ is. Isn't that what we're supposed to be anticipating? Isn't that what we're supposed to be expecting is Christ's return? So much so that we begin to see it here and now. And it comes through our prayer, but it certainly comes to the way in which we love each other, brothers and sisters. It is difficult to love one another. It is challenging because we are determined to be self-worshippers. We are determined to be self-lovers and to gather everything we can for ourselves. But instead, Peter gives us the alternative. 
He gives us the exact example of this kind of love. Verse 9, it says, show hospitality without grumbling. Man, hospitality. Some of us do this really well. Others, it's kind of challenging. But hospitality is a specific example of loving earnestly. Hospitality means letting people into our homes, making them feel welcome, meeting their needs, providing fellowship and acceptance for them. In Peter's context, how would people travel over these long journeys and distances? Where would they stay when they could only walk 20 miles, 30 miles a day? Whose houses would they stay at? People they would have even the slightest connection to. Your brother's sister's wife's uncle is coming through. In Peter's context, show hospitality and let them in. If that were happened to us today, what would our reaction be to that? No, no, I'm not opening my home to that. I don't know them. I have no connection to them. But in Peter's context, that is how open we should be in the body of Christ. To share all of ourselves with each other. And you know what this takes? This kind of hospitality and this kind of genuine love takes placing yourself second and others first. Over the, since the end of May until last Monday, Kelsey and I have had 41 nights of people staying in our house. It's nuts. Never done it before. I don't know if we'll do it again. Okay? It was, it was really difficult and challenging because as people were here, what is our responsibility? To put them first in all things. I didn't always do it. There were certainly many days, as Paul Peter's saying here, without grumbling, I grumbled. I confess that to you. It wasn't easy. Nonetheless, the Lord positioned us to place someone else in great, of greater importance before ourselves. That ought to happen within this church. This church ought to be made up of a body of believers who are willingly placing others before themselves. That is genuine love, and it results in the church looking like and being like Christ so that we don't have to necessarily anticipate his return because we see it already here. It certainly influences it. And so on the bottom, we have prayer on the side of this picture frame that we're putting together to elevate the image of Christ's return. We have genuine love. And now he gives us the next one. Starting in verse 10, he says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is the one who speaks oracles of God and whoever serves is the one who serves by the strength God supplies. Every believer in here as they place their faith in Christ, has received the Spirit, who in turn has given a spiritual gift. That word gift here uh, actually and literally means grace, which is why we eagerly await as faithful stewards of God's grace. But when we receive that gift, does possession of it change? Does it become our gift? Absolutely not. It is still the Lord's gift given to His church and so this church is a, is a storehouse of God's grace. It comes out in many different ways, shapes, and fashions, some through administration, some through discernment, some through evangelism, encouragement, giving, leadership, shepherding, preaching, teaching, wisdom, and the list goes on and on. This place is a variable storehouse of God's grace for the purpose of administering and distributing it to those who have need when they have need. Which is why he says, whoever speaks is the one who speaks the oracles of God and who serves, serves by the strength God supplies. These are still God's gifts. We ought to use them as good stewards 
for the very purpose at the end of verse 11, he says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. When there is a body of believers loving one another genuinely, they reflect the image of Christ. And when there's a body of believers using their gifts, they participate in activities like Christ would. Christ-like action and activities take place here. So much so that those of you who are using your gifts and stewarding, stewardingly, stewarding them well, gosh, that was really hard. You can't imagine not using them for God's glory. I remember the day in which I kind of understood that the Lord has given me the gift of preaching and teaching. It actually happened in high school. It didn't happen in the church, but someone from the church confirmed it. I was in, uh, I'm going to reveal something, Okay. I was the captain of the football team, but I was also in a show choir in high school. So I had a nice sparkly vest, I sang and I danced, okay? Hold hold those two things in tension when you think of me, all right? If you do a deep dive on my Facebook and pictures, you could probably still find some of those pictures. So if anyone friend requests me today, I know exactly what you're looking for. (laughs) And so when I, I, we were on some trip, it was... uh, a competition, and so we were in San Francisco for all week, and I got back on Monday, I was sitting in my first period class with Mrs. Henry, and she comes walking up the aisle, I was like in the middle of the, the classroom, and she knocks on my desk, and she says, you're up. I go, for what? And, and her eyes went like this, like, gotcha, type of thing, and she said, to give your book report presentation in front of the class. And I, I had completely forgot. I mean, it wasn't even like 11.59 at night on Sunday that I went, oh shoot, I forgot to do it. It just blanked. I had no idea. And at the time, I was still really anxious and nervous to speak in front of people. But the Lord saw it fit that I would forget, maybe. Uh, And so I walk up to the front of the class. I stand in front of them, and I start to share. I I didn't read all. I read like 75% of the book. I didn't finish the whole thing. And I start to share my experience in relating to the book. And and I sat down on my seat when I was finished, and I kind of looked around like, I loved doing that. That was, that was actually a lot of fun. I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I got to share about who I am and what the Lord is doing in my life, all those kind of things. And then I get my grade back the week later, and I, I didn't want to look at it. She hand on my desk upside down, which is never really a good sign. But I flip it back over, and it says 88. I was like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. And I look at what I missed. I didn't write the name of the book on the board or make a poster. But when it came to speaking, it was 100%. And that was two months later, my pastor took me out for lunch. He says, I think you should be in ministry. I want you to consider following the Lord and maybe being a pastor. And he didn't even have to say it twice. I went, yeah, I kind of want to do that already. And there have been a couple times in my life where I have hinted at or thought about doing something else with my life. And I keep coming back to my greatest joy is found in using my gift to build up the body of Christ. Why do all of these leaders, if you have this discipleship booklet up here, why are over 40 leaders in here that either have the gift of leadership, facilitation, administration, shepherding, why do they do it week in and week out? Because it takes more than just an hour to put that on. It takes hours maybe of actual prep time. It takes hours of mental preparation. Why do they do it each and every year? Because they couldn't imagine not doing it because it's God's gift and it fills them with great joy and anticipation for the Lord's return because when he returns, our work and our effort will be ease. It will not be difficult. 
We will love to work with the Lord and to walk with Him and partner with Him in all of ministry. And so using our gifts in the church is a slight and slim picture of what eternity will be like with the Lord. Man, so Paul says, use your gifts, use them wisely. Build up the church, resemble Christ. And if you don't know your gift, if you're unsure of what your gift is in the body of Christ, the more you are plugged into this body, whether it's through a group, a class, a community, here in worship, the people around you will begin to see what your gift is and point it out to you, just like it happened in my life. And you too can be filled with the great extent of joy that I have and many of the leaders here have because they are partnering with Christ in this church. And so Peter puts at the bottom this expectation of Christ with unhindered prayer. Then he adds genuine love, fruitful and faithful service, and then he caps it all off for the very reason we were all created. We eagerly await with accurate worship. He finishes off verse 11 and says, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter isn't just writing this to inform. I think this is Peter's heart. As he writes this, as he envisions heaven, as he remembers walking with Christ and can't wait to do it again, what's he saying? God is in his place. To him belongs glory, dominion forever and ever. He's bookending what he started with in verse 7. Christ is coming back to rule, to reign, to restore our relationships fully. And so our anticipation of Christ's return or the Lord calling us home is marred and undermined when we, our worship is misdirected and misinformed. What are we tempted to be each and every day? Self-worshippers. We're intended to view the world as if it is all coming to a point around us, that it revolves around us. And so we want to worship ourselves or we're upset and, and disgruntled, maybe even depressed that we can't worship ourselves. But this requirement of accurate worship, praising God for who he is and what he's done and what he will do fulfills the expectation that we have that Christ will return to reign and to rule. And so we have this powerful promise the Lord has given us of his glorious return. I want us to dwell on that daily. So much so that you begin to see how heaven has already broken through into the world that we now live I don't have to wait to experience the blessing of relationship with Christ. I already have it. I have the Holy Spirit. I have access to it right now. And so when I envision walking with God like I was in Yosemite, I'm reminded of his voice in sermons and songs and the way friends have encouraged me. The Lord has spoke to me already. When I examine what life will be like without want or need, I'm, I'm really confronted that my needs are already being met daily. He's providing for me physically, relationally, emotionally, spiritually. When I marvel at the future of enjoying every aspect of work and, and exerting effort, I'm, I move to know that I'm already filled with joy rendering service to God. When I think of living life continually in the radiance of God's glory, I think of the simple thing of walking outside on a cool, crisp day and the warmth of the sun beats on my back. I'm sure you've had that feeling. Now imagine that being the feeling, the joy forever, without end. God has given us glimpses of heaven already. Take hold of them and use them. Elevate your prayer with them. Love genuinely with them. Serve one another with your gifts faithfully. 
and accurately worship God for who he is, what he's promised. There's a phrase I'm sure many of you have heard that you are so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. It's a load of garbage. Because Peter's saying the exact opposite. Be so heavenly minded that you become earthly good. Brothers and sisters, we have that opportunity as we walk together in discipleship, following Christ to be like him. Elevate this picture through unhindered prayer, through genuine love for the saints, through faithful stewardship of your gifts and accurate worship for who God is and what he's promised to do. Will you pray with me? Oh, last thing I want you to do. I forgot this. I want you to spend five minutes today dwelling on heaven. And not just what it will be like, but you in it with Christ. And I want you to see the response that you will want to do and want to give. It's probably going to be one of the things that we've talked about. So spend five minutes today as you walk out. I think you'll be surprised at the fuel that it gives the rest of the disciplines. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we come before you and confess that we are a broken, stubborn people who really do live in the present. And sometimes, Father, the present becomes so overwhelming that we forget to think about our future. You have given us a promise that you wish to be set in front of us each and every day when we raise our head off the pillow to when we lay it back down again. May our minds be captivated by the promise of eternity with you. May that be the fuel that stokes the fires to pray without end, to love unconditionally, to serve faithfully, Father, and to worship you. And so now, as we've been captivated by heaven and what it may be like, I pray that this time of worship that the worship team will lead will will bring you honor and glory for you will rule forever and ever. It is our desire, Father, that you that you melt away any inclination that we have to forget that you have promised us eternity. So, Father, with open hands and an open heart, allow us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.